Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist's Newsflash. It is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Dave Ansell and with Dominic Ford. And let's kick off, as we always do, with a look at what's hot around the world from the world of science news. Dave, what have you got first? A new form of self-cleaning solar cells has been developed. Now, many of the sunniest places on Earth are also deserts, obviously. And therefore, the best place to put your solar cell is both very dusty and also very, very short of water to wash the dust off your solar panels. This can seriously reduce the efficiency of the system. Not only is this a problem on Earth, but the Mars rover's spirit and opportunity have been so losing power. And if it wasn't for the occasional random Martian mini whirlwind, they could have conked out years ago. Now, Malay Mazumba from Boston University has been working on this problem. In fact, he was working on lunar landers because the moon is especially bad for dust. He may have come up with a particularly neat water-free solution which will work on Earth as well. The idea is to cover the solar cell with small transparent electrodes and occasionally apply very high voltages to these electrodes, thousands of volts. These voltages are arranged to form waves moving across the panel um, which charge up dust, push it away gently, and then they sort of levitate and get pushed off the panel. So do you need a moving uh, sort of current then in order to make the dust move? Because otherwise, why wouldn't it just lift up and come back down again? There's very, very small currents involved, but you do need to move these kind of areas of, of um, high voltage a lot across your solar panels. So they get picked up and slowly moved across the um, panel. They reckon that they can shift about 90% of the dust on a panel in 60 seconds. And the energy is very, very small because although there's high voltage, it's very, very low current. Because it has been a major problem. I know you mentioned Mars, but uh, they're having to over-engineer more power capacity into the panels to compensate. And this means if you had a cleaning mechanism, you could have smaller, lighter space probes and things that would go for longer with fewer breakdowns and less of this dust problem. And even on Earth, you get more power for your money. Indeed. We're talking about the issue of using alternative energy and that kind of thing. There's a really interesting paper in the journal Science this week, um, which I think is one of the most interesting papers that's actually emerged this year. And in this paper, which is by Stephen Davies and his colleagues, they're at the Carnegie Institute, they're in Stanford, California. They have asked the question, we're all worried about climate change. We're all worried about whether or not it's possible to rescue the Earth from its fate because of the CO2 we've already put out into the atmosphere. But... Is it already too late? Or if we make changes now, can we turn this whole thing around? Is it yet game over or not? Now, they approached this in a very interesting way. What they did was to say, well, if we take all of the energy infrastructure and the traffic and the population we have on Earth at the moment, we know how much CO2 that makes. If we freeze that in time and therefore say, let it live out its lifetime, because they know that a coal-fired power station lasts about 40 years, a car is on the road for about 17 years, people are around for 60, 70 years, and so on. We know, therefore, how much CO2 that lot, the Earth as it stands at the moment, is going to produce. And they come up with a number of about 500 billion tonnes of CO2 between now and 2060. They can say that will warm the Earth up by about 1.3 degrees C compared with pre-industrial levels when we started to really churn out the CO2. That's about 0.7 C uh, hotter than it is now. That, they say, is what happens if we just don't build any new stuff. What will that do to CO2 ultimately, though? Well, according to their model, this will mean that the Earth stabilises with a CO2 level of about 430 parts per million. It's currently about 390. That will mean that that's a long way short of the 450 parts per million that scientists say would be the point of no return 
In other words, when we think the climate would go into a sort of positive feedback cycle and would, the game would be over, it would be unrescuable. So in other words, it's not the present infrastructure and it's not the present population that are the biggest threat to the Earth's future. It's actually, according to the researchers, what we're going to build next. So in other words, we have to pay particular attention to making sure that we roll out carbon-free energy infrastructure in the future, as uh, Stephen Davies explains. What we'd like to emphasise is that what's built isn't necessarily going to put us over these critical thresholds, but we need to really concentrate on building the right things going forward. I think one implication of this is that it might suffice to get existing coal-burning power plants, for instance, to commit to their scheduled shutdown dates and not to spend a whole lot of political capital trying to decommission those things early because it seems like they are not the ones that are going to cause the worst impacts. Well, I would say that the takeaway is that there's a kernel of hope that we can still turn the ship, that the, the worst problems are yet to be built. But that said, I think we qualify that by saying that there's a, still a lot of inertia in the system and that it's going to be very difficult to turn that ship. So we don't want to downplay the, the effort that it's going to require to ramp up carbon-free energy technology. Stephen Davies talking to us there. Dominic. Well, a paper published this week in the Astrophysical Journal presents the first direct observations of small asteroids in the outer solar system. And this is a story that began back in June when a couple of amateur astronomers on different continents were pointing telescopes simultaneously at Jupiter, and they saw a flash in Jupiter's atmosphere. Not a, a naked scientist flashing on Jupiter. <laughs> what did they actually see, though? This was a pulse of light which lasted for about two seconds. It sounds like a small thing, but they knew that this was odd, this was different, and they reported it. And since then, astronomers have been really working to explain what could have caused this flash. And they think it was probably the impact of a small asteroid into Jupiter's atmosphere. And the research published this week has actually got as far as producing quite a precise estimate of the size of this asteroid, which they think was about 10 metres across. That's amazing. It's a Jovian shooting star, for want of a better term. And exactly. you can use the flash to size the object. Is that by working out how bright it is? So you, you know roughly how, how much light it must have, must have given out, given the distance between us and Jupiter then? Yes, the larger the object, the brighter the flash it produces, and they have got images of this flash. They know how much light was there, and they can use models based on shooting stars in the Earth's atmosphere to work out how big this object was. And why is that significant? Well, the small size of this object is fascinating because there's never been a direct observation of an object this small that far out in the solar system before. We've thought these objects must be there because we know they're close to the Earth, but we've never actually seen one close to Jupiter. We've had no idea how many of these objects there are. Well, that's an interesting point. Is, is it a one-off? Well, this is fascinating because in August, another couple of amateur astronomers saw an almost identical event, a second event. So it seems probably these events have been going on several times a year, forever, and people have just assumed that you can't see them or haven't been looking for them, and so they've gone unrecorded. Now people know that you can see them, they're recording them, and probably in the next few months and years, we can expect to see lots more of these events being seen. And that means we can start to understand the distribution of sizes, the distribution in space of small objects on the outer edge of the asteroid belt. And that means in terms of working out where the asteroid belt came from, we can constrain those models much better. Which ultimately informs us a bit more about how our solar system put itself together about four and a half billion years ago, presumably. Yes, the leading theory is that a planet couldn't form between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, although there's quite a big gap there, because of the gravitational influence of Jupiter. And so you had this 
pile of rubble which never managed to fall into a planet. This will help to constrain those theories. And why are these meteorites only now appearing? Well, I should say, why are these asteroids only now beginning to impact on Jupiter, given that they've had four and a half billion years of solar system evolution to do that? The objects that we're seeing have probably been orbiting in the asteroid belt in stable orbits for a long time. They've perhaps had a close encounter with another object and been kicked into a different orbit, which has made them unstable and thrown them toward Jupiter. Dominic, thank you. Well, also this week, scientists have uh, made a big breakthrough in understanding a new way to tackle the problem of cancer. Of course, cancer is a genetic disease. Cells run amok in the body. They grow out of control. They ignore the normal growth constraints and tissue constraints, and they invade, damage other tissues, and spread to other sites around the body. And they also chemically disturb your metabolism, which is all part of the disease associated with having cancer. One of the problems with treating cancer, though, are those very factors. They're your own cells, so how do you discriminate against them with drugs? And most of the drugs we do have just target cells that are growing very fast, which means that they also inevitably have side effects. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a way to selectively home in just on cancer cells and persuade them to kill themselves? Well, that's what Niles Pierce and his colleagues, who are based at Caltech in America, have published in the journal PNAS this week. They found a way to make it happen for at least some cancers. What they've done is to build what are called conditional RNAs. These are small pieces of genetic material called RNA. It's a genetic relative of DNA. But unlike DNA, which is two chains of genetic material, one being the mirror image of the other, RNA is just single-stranded. It's a single piece of genetic material. And when you put it into a cell, it can go looking for its mirror image counterpart in the genetic material. So what they've done is to produce these RNA molecules, one of which they term the diagnostic molecule, the diagnostic component, and this can be programmed to seek out specific and characteristic genetic sequences in the genome of the cell which are associated with certain cancers. And if this small RNA detects those genetic changes... It can then change its shape, triggering a second conditional RNA to unwind its structure, and it then recruits other of these small molecules and joins up with them, producing a very long sequence, almost in a chain reaction, of what's called double-stranded RNA. Now, you never normally see double-stranded RNA in a cell. It only happens if the cell becomes virally infected. And cells have evolved their own unique way to deal with viruses that infect them, they kill themselves. So when a cell sees this tract of double-stranded RNA, it's fooled into thinking it's been infected by a virus and it commits suicide. And what the researchers have been able to do is to test this strategy against four different types of cancer in the dish and they find that they can achieve selective killing of the cancer cells only by between 20 and 100-fold compared with healthy cells. In other words, it's a bit like a genetic smart bomb that only goes off if the cell is cancerous. So does it work for all cancers? Well, unfortunately, not necessarily, because some cells have evolved not to have this antivirus mechanism working in them, because that's part of the cancer disease. So it won't work for everything, but it does have several significant advantages, as Niles Pierce explains. There are two crucial properties of the approach that would make a difference for patients if we were able to use this in humans. One is that we would be able to program drugs for a particular tumor in a particular patient. Two, these conditional chemotherapies would turn on selectively only in cells that contain the targeted cancer mutation. And so conceptually, this would lead to dramatically reduced side effects. So both of those properties would be fundamentally important to a patient. 
Niles Pierce from Caltech talking to us earlier this week. Thanks. And now for something completely different. Something which is perplexing physicists is why the fundamental physical constants of what they are. Why the speed of light is about 300,000 kilometres a second. Why the charge of electron is what it is. For that matter, are they actually constant? So this is actually boiling down to why does physics behave as it does? And is it the same everywhere? Yeah, I was going to say, because when you say are they constant, that's there's two questions in that, isn't there? One is are they constant as in in one place all the time and then the other part of the question is well are they constant here but not somewhere else in space that's right we know that they're pretty much constant and everywhere we've done experiments they seem to be exactly the same but we're limited to the places we can actually do physical experiments to where we can get to basically in our solar system um the one thing which we can test in the rest of the universe is something called the fine structure constant this is kind of a com- the combination of the charge of the electron the planck's constant and the speed of light and measures um how elect- electric field and quantum mechanics interact to create energy levels inside an atom and it can be measured by looking at the spectra of atoms so it's very great it's great for astronomers you can look at things billions of light years away um, now, John Webb and colleagues from the University of New South Wales have been looking at some of the most distant sources we can see. They're called quasars, active galaxies, billions of light years away. Um, these are black holes accreting material. Um, and in 2003, they discovered that the fine constants. Uh, sorry. And in 2003, they discovered that the fine structure constant appears to have increased about one part in 200,000 since the light left these quasars. But the study was only done in the Northern Hemisphere, so he thought he ought to do it in the Southern Hemisphere, and he's just got the um, results back from the very large telescope in Chile. And they found something possibly even more interesting. Um, the results within the South, the fine structure constant, was changing by about the same amount as you go back in time, but it was decreasing rather than increasing. So, in other words, they're not looking at the same target in the North and South Hemispheres. They're looking at different bits of the universe. Yeah, because the Northern Hemisphere, you can only see upwards to the north and sometimes you can see downwards so you're looking at different bits of the universe. So that argues that different bits of the universe are obeying different potentially different rules of physics. Yeah, it's very very subtle one point in a hundred thousand but yeah it could be that they're obeying the rules of laws of physics are changing throughout the universe. What does that mean for astronomy because we've been making all these measurements about very distant very far away objects and trying to understand very very massive numbers and the structure of the universe so if it obeys different rules in different bits of itself a how does that happen and b what does that actually mean in terms of our understanding of the structure of the universe well if these results do hold up i mean time will tell but it could mean that lots of cosmology is based on the physics being exactly as it is now so all sorts of things which they're deriving off to one layer after layer after layer could be completely wrong but it could also explain why the physical constants seem to be so ideal for our type of life here because if they're different all over the universe then obviously there will be somewhere where it'll work and this happens to be it and that massively increases the chances of, of us existing, really, doesn't it? It's not just so unlikely that we exist with these numbers the way they are. It's just that there's so many different rolls of the dice right across the known universe that somewhere you're going to get the right combinations of numbers to, to make a life like ours possible. Yeah, in a big, big enough universe, there will be somewhere where life can thrive. So what's it going to take to get to the bottom of this to know whether this is, A, a real observation and holds true for the whole universe, and B... Actually, then, what we're going to do about it? Well, I guess they're going to have to do a lot more um, experiments, see whether it holds up. Probably different people do it, attempting to test it in different ways because this is essentially only one result. It might be some systematic error in their telescopes or something wrong. So basically a lot more physics over probably quite a few years. 
read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. Now, also this week, uh, EPSRC, that's the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, funded researchers in Glasgow have been investigating how we respond emotionally to music and how this could lead to music actually being used in pain control, almost music on prescription. Sarah Castor-Perry has caught up with the researchers involved to find out a little bit more. We are all musical. Every human being has a biological and social guarantee of musicianship. Everybody can learn to express themselves and communicate through music. Also, we are all musical in the sense that we all respond emotionally to music. When we listen to music, we are moved in quite profound and powerful ways. So whether it's a soothing classical melody or a raging, angry rock song, we all have a hugely emotional relationship with music. That was Professor Raymond MacDonald at Glasgow Caledonian University, who's part of a project being funded by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council to find out how music conveys emotion. The project brings together music psychologists like Professor MacDonald with expert audio engineers like Dr Don Knox, who's been using volunteers and specially developed computer software to analyse a huge range of pieces of contemporary music to determine the mood and emotion that they express. We try to classify and categorise pieces of music in terms of two axes, one of which is intensity and loudness, and the other one is uh, valence or stress, negative positive stress. So they look at the general overall loudness and activity levels in the music. And if they were, you know, above a certain point, the music might be classed as being exuberant or if it was negatively stressed, it might be anxious or frantic. And we analyse and extract lots of audio and acoustical parameters from the music and map the pieces of music onto those axes. But what makes us choose particular pieces of music in different situations? When we first say to people, this is what we're doing, you know, we're, we're classifying emo- music and motion, some of the first comments you get is, well, you know, I'll put the happy music on to do happy things and dance, and I'll put sad music on or relaxing music to do this. And really, it's much more complicated than that, and the, the music psychologists are really opening their eyes to, to how people actually interact with music. That relationship and emotional connection with music and how people use it for things like stress reduction and pain relief, if you will, uh, is much more complicated than just you know using happy music for happy things and sad music for sad things. And classifying each piece of music in such a detailed way is allowing the music psychologists to figure out exactly what it is in the music that makes us choose it for a particular situation and how it can affect not just our emotions but our physical perception too. Professor MacDonald explained to me how the project is building on previous studies carried out with his colleague Laura Mitchell. Earlier work purely looked at people's preference. So what we initially found out was that listening to your favourite music reduced your anxiety perceptions and your pain perceptions. And we had a whole range of different types of music that was selected, you know, Hotel California by the Eagles, Packabell's Cannon, In My Place by Coldplay. And we originally suggested that there was no common structural features between these particular pieces. But Don's work, along with Scott Beveridge, has been able to show or starting to show how certain structural features of music are important in trying to predict their emotional effect upon the listener. So although there is still work to be done, the implications of the project are really exciting. 
On the one hand, knowing how people respond emotionally to particular structures found in music could have important clinical applications in music therapy and using music for pain control. And also, for all those music lovers out there addicted to their MP3 players, it could herald a new way of classifying the music in your library and a new way of searching for that exact piece of music to match your mood. So, in the future, you might find yourself browsing through the music store by mood rather than by artist. I also hope it doesn't usher in an era where people get sued for making people depressed because they played a tune that's known to provoke negative emotions. What a horrible thought. Sarah Castor-Perry was speaking with Glasgow Caledonian University's Raymond MacDonald and Don Knox. The Naked Scientist's Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.